you have your Bibles with you today, turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 14 this morning. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a powerful passage we have before us today. A passage, Lord, that ought to shake every single one of us in this building today as we realize that that great day will come when we stand before you. We will give an account for what we've done in our body, whether good or bad. Heavenly Father, we would ask that you help us as as we realize that this day is coming, may we rejoice in the fact that for us as believers, there is therefore now no condemnation, but Lord, also that there is a time for us to be judged for our works and rewarded for what we have done or loss of rewards for what we have not done. God, and direct us through this passage today. Jesus, may you be uplifted and exalted through it. May this congregation be edified by it. And it's in Jesus' holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we were looking at the last battle and the defeat of Satan. Let me very quickly refresh your memories. Um, What's going on? At the end of the thousand years, which symbolically is at the end of history, what takes place? Satan is released for a short season. For what purpose? For the purpose that that he might once again deceive the nations. That he might gather together the unbelievers in defiance and anger against the Christians. But before Satan can accomplish his evil, something glorious happens. Jesus calls His bride to Himself. Those that are are in heaven, that have died, that are Christians, are there in the Spirit. They will be resurrected at that point in time. And they will be with the Lord in the clouds. And then we who are alive and remain, we that are Christians here, will be translated, taken to be with the Lord in the clouds. And then we will all immediately return with Jesus to put an end to the battle. Satan will be cast into the burning lake of fire. And Jesus will say the word and the unbelievers will be consumed. Now folks, this is not their end. This is not their end. For immediately after this, uh, the, the the unsaved dead will be resurrected. And the bodies of the resurrected unsaved dead will be eternal bodies. But they will not be bodies like our glorified bodies. They will be bodies that can experience pain. There will be bodies that have the capacity to fear. There will be bodies that have the capacity to hate. 
There will be bodies that have the capacity of a sin nature. That sin nature will never leave them. This is a body that can never die. But it is a body that can experience pain. And that nature that they had on earth will follow them into this resurrection. And so the drunkard will still crave his alcohol. The heroin addict will still crave his drugs. The pedophile will still crave children. The sex addict will still crave his perversions. And people like Saddam Hussein and Stalin and Hitler will be there hungering still for power but it never being satisfied. Look with me again at verses 11 and 12. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now let me read you the parallel passage to this from the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 25. I'm going to read verse 31 through 34 and then verse 41 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, my brethren, then you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now dispensationalists will tell you that the next thing uh, that will happen in prophetic history is the rapture of the church. And then immediately after the rapture of the church that the Christians will be judged. And there'll be a seven-year period of tribulation here on earth, they say. And then at the end of the seven-year period of tribulation, Christ will return. And Christ will return at that point in time. He will set up a literal 1,000-year golden age where He sits in a throne in Jerusalem, a literal throne, And he reigns for a thousand years, literally. At the end of that thousand years, then there will be the judgment of the unrighteous or the judgment of the unbelievers. So in that system, in that scheme, you have a separation of the the judgment for the believers and the judgment of the unbelievers that is a 1,007-year separation. Folks, that is not what Jesus said here in Matthew chapter 25. In fact, Jesus is telling us that the resurrection of the saved and the resurrection of the unsaved will take place almost simultaneously. That He will be seated on His throne, that the the sheep will be on His right hand, that's the believers, the goats on His left hand, that's the unbelievers. 
And I would suggest to you that what Jesus said in John chapter 5 backs this up with great power. John chapter 5 verse 28 through 29 says this, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus said that the resurrection of the just and the unjust will not take place with a thousand and seven year separation. But they will happen when? Jesus said, in that same hour. Look at verse 11 with me again. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Man, if you want to be awed, if you want to be wowed, if you want to have your socks knocked off, then take this verse and study it, read it, and meditate on it. Here's the Lord God Almighty on His throne. He says the word, and earth and sky flee from His presence. Now, why is that necessary? Well, it is necessary because earth and sky are tainted with sin. They have been since the fall of Lucifer and then the fall of Adam and then all the way through history as mankind has lived in sin and had a sin nature to, de- dwell, to have to deal with. And so what happens here? The Lord says the word and the earth and, uh, and sky is purged and it's purified as it flees away from Him. Now Peter spoke of this very thing in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10-13. through 13. Listen and see how it pieces together. He said, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Well, verse 11 says, And no place was found for them. Who is the them? The them is the unbelievers. The unbelievers. With heaven and earth made new and purified and made perfectly sinless, the unbelievers are not welcome. And they will be judged at this point in time and cast into the burning lake of fire. Verse 12 tells us that the dead, great and small, will stand before the throne. And here we see that nobody escapes judgment. G.K. Bill said the following, The term small and great is used of all classes of believers in Revelation eleven eighteen, and of all classes of unbelievers in Revelation nineteen eighteen. So that the same wording in Revelation twenty twelve may be all-inclusive reference to both believer and unbeliever. The basis for judgment of the impious is the record of the evil deeds written in the books. The record books are metaphorical for God's unfailing memory, which at the end provides the account of the misdeeds of the wicked to be presented before them. All right, over the next few weeks, what I'd like to do is to delve into these two judgments. For this week and next week, we're going to be looking at the believer's judgment. 
And then the following week, we'll be looking at the unbeliever's judgment. Today, what I want to do is to take this passage and see how it relates to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. That verse says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what is done in the body, whether good or evil. Now that verse right there throws a lot of Christians into a tizzy because it's a judgment on our works. And what people say is, now wait a minute, we're not saved by works. So how are we saved? We are saved by grace through faith plus nothing. That's how we are saved. We are saved by grace. It is not by works. We need to, to, to understand that. So if you're a born-again believer, then you can claim Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But what do the works prove? The works prove the reality of our salvation. James said that faith without works is dead, being alone. Works do not save us, but they are the proof of our salvation. You remember the story in, in 1 Kings chapter 3 of the two harlots that came to King Solomon, asked him to settle an argument? And so these two harlots come and, and King Solomon says, Okay, tell me what's going on. One of the ladies says, Well, we, we live together in the same house. We sleep in the same room. We both had, had little babies, little newborn babies. And she said, and, and this one said that as we were sleeping, the other lady rolled over uh, on, the, on the baby as she was sleeping, her baby, and suffocated her baby, and the baby died. And then while I was sleeping, she got up, she took the dead baby, and, and she swapped it for my alive baby. And when I woke up, my baby was gone, and I had the dead baby. And she said, this is wrong. I want my baby now. And so the other lady gave her side of the story, told the same story, only she reversed the roles. And so King Solomon said, okay, this is what we're going to do. He said, I, I want you to bring me a sword. I'm going to take this baby, and I'm going to take the baby and cut it in half. And I'll give you a half, and I'll give you a half. And one of the ladies jumped up and said, oh, no, please don't do that. Please don't hurt the baby. Give the baby to the other lady. It's okay. I'll walk away from this situation. The other lady said, well, if that's what you're going to do, you're going to do. Neither one of us will have a baby. And Solomon pointed to the one lady and said, This lady who was willing to give the baby up, who would not let the baby be harmed, this lady is the mother. Give the baby to her. Now, what was Solomon looking for? He was not looking for a deed that would earn that child for the mother. He was looking for a deed that would prove that that child belonged to the mother. This is the way that God looks at our works. He is not looking for works that purchase our salvation. He is looking for works that prove that we are truly saved. These works don't save us, but they are evidence that we belong to Christ. Jim Eliff was preaching on the believer's judgment one Sunday, and uh, he was speaking specifically, putting a lot of emphasis on eternal rewards. And somebody in the church after the service said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, if God will put me on the, the back row of heaven in a, on a three-legged stool, I'll be happy. And Jim Ellis said he understood what the guy was saying. 
He, he, was, he was saying that I'm an undeserving sinner and, and if I just if God would save me from hell and, and just give me the least degree of heaven, he said that would be much more than I deserve. But that man's remark betrays a serious misunderstanding of the nature of eternal rewards. Listen to a quote from Jim Eliff. The people who jealously care so little about eternal rewards are often killing themselves trying to accumulate a great reward now. They profess to be content with a little shack in heaven, but they want a much bigger one on earth. The Bible teaches that there is nothing wrong with ambition just so long as we focus on it and focus on heaven rather than earth. So let's take a look today at the character of the believer's judgment. Three things I want to share with you, three points that I want to... uh, share with you today. Number one, we will be judged fairly. Fairly. Look at verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So who is doing the judging? Jesus is doing the judging. Jesus, the one who died for us on the cross, is doing the judging. Why did Jesus die for us on the cross? He died for us for the glory of His Father, but He also died because He has such a great love for us. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that the devil is not my judge. I'm glad that the Pharisees are not my judge. I'm glad that the unbelievers are not my judge. I am glad that Jesus is my judge. For he is filled with mercy and filled with great love. And although I have often failed him, and although I know that things are going to be brought up that are going to make me weep, I also know this about Jesus. He is my Savior. He is my King. He is my provider, my protector, my deliverer, my defender. He is filled with mercy. Mercy and great love. There have been times in my life as a Christian where I have known what I should have done. And I didn't do it. Instead of being obedient to the Lord, I was obedient to my flesh. And I did what I wanted to do instead of what He was calling me to do. Unless I missed my guess, every one of you can say the same thing. There have been those times in our lives. Those times will shame me when they are revisited in the last day. Now the scriptures teach in Revelation 21 that the day is coming when God is going to wipe away every tear from our, from our eyes. But you know that day doesn't come before this judgment. That day will come when the new heavens and the new earth come. But this day of judgment will be first. Christians, we will be judged by a Lord of mercy and a Lord of compassion. His Father is our Father. And this is family business here. But don't take it lightly. If you are unfaithful on this earth, this judgment will not be a joy. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul said, We shall be recompensed for the things done in our body, whether, whether good or bad. And then Paul immediately makes this statement. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul connects the fear of the Lord with the judgment seat of Christ. There are some who teach that, that this, is, uh, this judgment of the believers is going to be a positive experience for every believer. I don't believe that's true. I think some believers will be very fearful at this judgment. 
In fact, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, in 1 John said that some believers will be ashamed at the coming of Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 says this, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Our Lord Jesus will administer only that which is right and only that which is just. He, he will not wink at our disobedience. He does not play favorites and nothing will slide by Him unnoticed. So what did I do with my life, with my abilities, with my talents, with the spiritual gift that God graced me with? Did I take Jesus and push Him back to the back burner? Or did I die to self so that Christ might be preeminent? Folks, we need to consider what our testimony will be like on that last day. We need to have a testimony like Paul had. When he came to the end of his life, knowing that his head was going to be chopped off, and he wrote these words down so that we would have them. And I meditate on these words a lot because I know this is the kind of testimony that the Lord would have me to have. Paul said, For I am now ready to be offered in the time of my departures at hand. For I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also who love His appearing. So first of all, the Lord will judge us fairly. But point two, the Lord will judge us thoroughly. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The word appear, in the phrase that we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, is a Greek word, phaneru, and it means to make manifest. Philip Hughes said this, To be laid bare, stripped of every outward facade of respectability, and openly revealed in the full reality of one's character, all of our hypocrisies and concealments, all of our secrets, intimate sins of thoughts and deeds will be open to the scrutiny of Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24, Paul said, Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. God commands us to confess our sins now. And one of the, I think the, one of the reasons for that is because when we try to cover our sin, bad things happen, don't they? In Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, it was King Solomon who said, He who covers his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes his sin shall have mercy. In David's prayer in Psalm 51, uh, David uh, taught us how God desires truth in the inward parts, how God wants us to be open and transparent, how God wants us to, to, to run from hypocrisy and run away from revealing and trying to cover over sin. Listen to what Erwin Lutzer said about this. Because Christ is omniscient, every single detail can be brought into the final verdict with every motive and action accounted for in context. Everything hidden today will be relevant in that day. We've all known churches that have split over one or more issues, sometimes doctrinal, sometimes personal. Some want the pastor to stay, others want the pastor to leave. Rumors circulate from one member to another. Telephone lines buzz with char charges and countercharges. 
Usually people are hurt on both sides and hidden animosities simmer for years to come. The Corinthian church had the tendency to fight and bicker among themselves just as we often do. In 1 Corinthians 4 5, Paul admonishes them and says this, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Some disputes will not be resolved until that last day. And there's a reason for that. When we look at people and what they're doing, all we can really see is their behavior. We don't have the ability to look into the heart and to see the motive and the intent. When there are trials that are going on in our world today, and this has been all the way through history, the prosecutor will go out and try everything he can to get all the evidence that he can. He'll try to find out where the, the person that's being accused was at the time of the, of the crime. He'll try to find out if the person has said anything about it and what he's been doing in the past. And he'll try to put all this evidence together so he can try to determine the motive and the intent. That never happens with God. God never has to ask questions. Because when He has us before Him in judgment, He will look at us and not only will He know our actions and what we have done, but the motives and intents of the heart. That's the negative part of the judgment. But there's also a comforting part of this judgment. We are to... um, He's dealing with here not just the bad things that we've done, but also the good things. Remember the story of uh, Jezebel and how she falsely accused Naboth of, of terrible things like blasphemy? She did that so that that they would have to, to kill Naboth, that he would be capitally punished, that they would take his life. Why? Because she wanted Naboth's vineyard. She wanted to be able to take Naboth's vineyard and give it to Ahab as a birthday present. But Naboth would not sell his vineyard. So she got mad. She accused him falsely. And they took him because of those false charges. They took him out and they stoned Naboth to dead, to death And he had done absolutely nothing wrong. Let me tell you, in that last day, Naboth will be vindicated. Jesus said that even a a cup of cold water given in his name will be remembered by God. You know, I I look around at some of the people in this church, and you do things for other people that most people never know. You you take meals over to sick people or grieving people or or people that are just, just down and need some help. If there's a person who is needing money, you go to those people and you help them out financially. If there's a family where there's a dysfunction in the family and there's children there, you go there kind of behind the scenes. Most people don't see it, but you're ministering to those kids and helping them through a difficult time. Those things will be brought up in heaven. Charles Long's dear, dear friend of mine, he was missionary to Vietnam for 17 years. He was a man that I had just great, great respect for. He was in his house one night, one day in Vietnam, and, and a man, doctor, came running to his house. And he said, Charles, I, I need your help. So there's been a bombing at the hospital, and three of the nurses have been killed. And it's going to take three days to get the replacement nurses in. 
Can you come and help? Charles said he would. He went immediately back with the doctor. The hospital was a leper hospital. And it was his responsibility to clean the wounds, to put in new medicine, and to rebandage those wounds. He started working. He said the stench of that decaying flesh was so bad, he would have to run outside and vomit and then run back in. He worked for 72 hours without stopping. No meals, no rest, no breaks, nothing. Changing those wounds, ministering to those lepers. Finally, the replacement nurses got there. And when they got there, Charles said he just walked uh, out of the front of the hospital, said there was a tree. And he walked over and sat, plopped down under that tree. And he said he looked down at his hands, and they were covered with stained blood, and, and they were just smelled horrible. He looked down at his hands and said, what are these hands doing here in Vietnam? He said, these hands could have been the hands of a surgeon or the hands of a lawyer or or the hands of a salesman who had a lucrative business. I could have been doing that in the United States, he said. What are these hands doing in Vietnam? And he said, all of a sudden, it hit him like a ton of bricks. He said to himself, those hands are here in Vietnam because, Charles, those hands are not your hands. They're God's. He said he felt so convicted that he just rolled over on his face and just wept out there in the grass. And he begged the Lord for forgiveness. Charles said that that lesson he learned that day that he would never forget for the rest of his life. He did that for Christ's sake. He did that for Christ's sake. And it will be brought up someday in the future and all of us will see it. Charles contracted a liver disease while, from a parasite while he was over in Vietnam. Eight years ago, he died because of that liver disease. He died as a relatively very young man. If he had it to do over again, would he do it? Absolutely, he would do it. Because this was his motto. Only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Woodrow Kroll said it this way, It will be both a day of vindication and a day of disappointment. No time will be needed to gather evidence. No jurors will be selected to hear the argument. Every detail has been known by Christ from the foundation of the world. If we have a question, it will be answered. But it is more likely that we will be speechless. We will see what He sees and know that His verdict is eminently just. Point three is we will be judged impartially. Romans chapter 12 verse 11 says, For God shows no partiality. The the literal Greek says that God is not a face taker. And what that means is that God is not swayed like you are and like I am by human things. He's not swayed by appearance. He's not swayed by personality. He doesn't have to be because He knows us inside out. You know, it's interesting to, to watch a... A situation out on the highway where there's a, a, a traffic jam and all of a sudden people are trying to get over in the lane and nobody will let them in. If there's a beautiful lady that's in a car trying to get in, all she's got to do is turn around and bat her eyes and men will be slamming on brakes and she'll just go right through and everything's fine. If there's an old ugly man that's out there trying to get in, he'll just sit out there till he rots. Why do we do that? Because we're influenced by outward appearance. 
God is not. He is not wowed by our talents. He's not wowed by our intelligence. There will be no special advantage for the wealthy here on this earth when the judgment comes. Nor will pastors and missionaries be given preferred treatment. Now, pastors and missionaries may get special rewards for their service if it was real service for Christ. But pastors and missionaries are going to be judged by a higher standard. James 3.1 says that those who teach the word of God will be judged by stricter judgment. To whom much is given, much is required. I know missionaries right now have been on the field for years and they have suffered. Maybe they've risked their lives and they've worked hard and they've worked their hands to the bone and they've preached hard and yet they've seen very little visible fruit. Very few people coming to Christ. And there's some missionary that comes on the field and he preaches and all of a sudden there's a great host of people coming to Christ. How are those two going to fare in the last judgment? How are they going to fare? Folks, God will not just look at the human results. He will look at the faithfulness of those missionaries. That's what matters. One great American general said it like this, The duty is ours. The results are left up to God. When George Whitfield was on his deathbed, he asked them to put this epitaph on his tombstone. Here lies George Whitfield. What sort of man he was, the great day will discover. From what I understand, that request was not granted. They did not put that on George uh, Whitfield's gravestone. They did not do that. But I tell you what, I love the heart that, that said it. I love the heart that wanted that to be put on his gravestone. For he was saying, God will not judge me according to my reputation. And God will not judge me according to what the newspaper said. God will judge me righteously and impartially. Folks, how will God judge us as believers? He will judge us fairly. He will judge us thoroughly. And He will judge us impartially. You know what we need to do? We need to meditate on this doctrine. We need to meditate on this truth. For the scripture says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this great passage of scripture that tells us, Lord, that that day is coming when we're going to stand before you. And Lord, you've given us this, that we might know it, that we might understand it, and that, Lord, we might prepare ourselves for that day. Heavenly Father, may we die with a testimony like Paul had, who came to the end of his life and was able to say that he'd fought the good fight, he'd finished the course. He kept the faith. Heavenly Father, may that be true of all of us. And now, Lord, as we're getting ready to partake of the Lord's Supper, we, we come with great anticipation that we're going to experience your presence in a very sweet and a very wonderful way. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would just pour your Spirit out upon this congregation now as we prepare ourselves to celebrate your supper. God, and direct us through it. May Jesus be honored in it. And it's in your holy and wonderful and precious name that we pray. Amen.